Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 261, Michael J. Martinez, The Daedalus Series. Thanks for tuning in to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. We have another round of giveaways for this week. Woohoo! The details I'm not quite sure about because I've kind of mixed the schedule up a little bit. I was supposed to have Michael Martinez and Jeff Salyards on the show. Uh, schedules didn't permit, so we just have Michael for this week, and then Jeff will be for next week, um, as long as that works out. <laughs> and so we're going to do an excerpt and guest post by Robin Riopel, who's Supernatural... Um, not sure if you'd call it horror, probably. Um, but anyway, her book, Dead Roads, we're going to have a guest post on that with an excerpt on Wednesday. And so we're going to have some of that book to give away. We're going to have some of Michael's books to give away. Uh, the exact number, I'm not sure. Sorry, it is just for U.S. entries. My U.K. contacts aren't as large as my U.S. contacts, but I do know Titan Books, and um, we do have a giveaway coming up from them. So I'm hoping to get some more of those to get some of our U.K. listeners some more giveaways. This is the time of year when podcasting means the most to me as a listener, and uh, so it's an honor for me to put out some episodes for you. I just love exercising and doing yard work and listening to podcasts. Uh, It's vital to uh, the encouragement of being, you know, the long-running writer. I still only have one short story published, uh, and I've been doing this for many years, so (laughs) it's good to have stuff like this. Um, I'm glad to put it out. A long-standing podcast that I love, Speculate, they are running a Kickstarter right now for their next season. Um, So if you go over to speculatesf.com or browse on Kickstarter, help them fund their next season. To lose them would be a major loss to our community. Another thing that I've learned, and I don't remember if I've mentioned this or not, I love riding on the back of my car. Uh, it's still cool, so it's still nice to be outside. And so I just set up my laptop on the cooling fan in a box on my trunk in the garage. I got a little carpet square out there to help ease my feet, and it just makes it so much better to write standing up and outside enjoying nature. So if you haven't tried that, maybe give it a shot. All right, without further ado, enjoy the show. Thank you for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. I'm very pleased to have on the line author Michael J. Martinez. Hi. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. <laughs> Welcome. And it it's michaeljmartinez.net, I found out today. Yes, it is. You poor guy. I <laughs> so Somebody took the com because I have the uh, Hispanic equivalent of Smith for a last name. So, uh, alas, I couldn't get my name in com, but, you know, net, a little different, a little fun. 
it might be easier for you to pronounce the second book, but Michael has two books out by Nightshade Books. Uh, they are a combination of swashbuckling space opera with uh, maybe hard SF. Maybe you could add that twist to it. Um, so, Michael, introduce the names of your books, and then if you want to read a back cover of The Daedalus Incident for those who haven't heard of this series. Absolutely. So, yes, as you said, um, the first book in what has become the Daedalus series is The Daedalus Incident. It came out last summer. Um, and the second book, uh, called The Enceladus Crisis, uh, just came out May 6th. Um, and again, you're right, both of them are very much a, a sort of genre mashup between a historical fantasy in which the Age of Sail, the Napoleonic era, takes place in space between our planets in, in, in the 17, late 1700s, and a hard science fiction future, which is more of a sort of our future, very technological. Um, and let me go ahead and I'll, I'll read uh, just a, a little synopsis of the Daedalus incident. Mars is supposed to be dead, a fact that Lieutenant Shayla Jane of the Joint Space Command is beginning to doubt in a bad way. Freak quakes are rumbling over the long dormant tectonic plates of the planet, disrupting its lucrative mining operations and driving scientists past the edges of theory and reason. However, when rocks shake off their ancient dust and begin to roll, seemingly of their own volition, carving canals as they converge to form a towering structure amid the ruddy terrain, Lieutenant Jane and her JSC team realize that their routine geological survey of a Martian cave system is anything but. The only clues they have stem from the emissions of a mysterious blue radiation and, inexplicably, a 300-year-old journal. Lieutenant Thomas Weatherby of His Majesty's Royal Navy is an honest 18th-century man of modest beginnings, doing his part for king and country aboard HMS Daedalus, a frigate sailing the high seas between continents and the immense void between the known worlds. Across the solar system and among its colonies, rife with plunder and alien slave trade, through dire battles fraught with strange alchemy, nothing much can shake his resolve. But events are transpiring to change all that. With the aid of his fierce captain, a drug-addled alchemist, and a servant girl with a remarkable past, Weatherme must track a great and powerful mystic who has embarked upon a sinister quest to upset the balance of the planets, the consequences of which may reach far beyond the solar system, threatening the very fabric of space itself. Set sail amongst the stars with this uncanny tale where adventure awaits and dimensions collide. <laughs> well, that was... Um, I didn't write that, actually. <laughs> that was wonderfully over the top. Um, but I do think it captures a lot of the uh, swashbuckling goodness that we put in there. So that's awesome. <laughs> I have the audiobook version, and I, I like how it has different voices for Shayla and Weathersby so that it's male and female. Uh, it does a good job with that. Oh, man, I, I, I have to say I haven't listened to it all. Um, because I'm a little afraid of those voices getting in my head and replacing the voices that are already there, which sounds not like I meant it at all. Um, but uh, Chris, Kristen Cobley and Bernard Clark did a fantastic job, and I, I do love that Audible chose two narrators to go back and forth between the two settings. I think it turned out fantastic. I was uh, listening to a Writing Excuses podcast recently with uh, where – Brandon Sanderson was talking about his third law, which is um, 
essentially that when you have a magic system, it's better to dive deep into it as opposed to having 30 magic systems that you don't really get too far into. Uh, and as they were having this conversation, he was talking about making it immersive without being so weird that weird or unrealistic that it takes the reader out of the story. And you have something I've well, I've never seen it before, so kudos to you on that. Um, in relation to this, almost like a time travel piece where you go back in time in these alternate POVs, uh, the woman, Shayla, in the future, and Weathersby in the past. Uh, and yet Weathersby is, he's he's got a sailing ship in space. Kind of introduce us to that a little bit and talk about how maybe you were trying to make it immersive, but without being, I guess, unrealistic to throw readers out? Well, the whole idea really started with sailing ships in space. And my gosh, wouldn't that be cool? Um, <laughs> the notion of, you know, I, I, I'm a really simple guy at the end of the day. So uh, the, the, I wanted to have something that that put the very serious Napoleonic era Royal Navy master and commander, Horatio Hornblower, and bring that into space, bring that into the solar system and have a setting in which England and France and everybody else in Europe colonized our solar system. And, and there are some pulp elements in that solar system. But the engine for that, which is the magic system, really came last because I had the idea of the ship sailing to Mars first. How do you do that while trying to remain true to sort of the historical time period in which you're in you know we all have memories of Spelljammer, for ex for example where your magic user sits in a magic throne and powers your ship and uh, no we're not going to do that um and, and sort of overt magic seemed out of place um but alchemy was a real deal back in the late 1700s now it was on its way out it was being discredited by more modern scientific methods but what if alchemy actually had some real use, some real facility to perform wondrous works? And so it seemed like a good fit. And basically, I created a, a if you will, magic system around that. And the nice thing about it was it also lent itself to a number of the characters. It's been a year, so if folks haven't read it, I don't think I'm going to spoil too much. But um, Cagliostro is one of the characters in the book. Uh, he was an alchemist. He, he was a fraud back in the 1700s, but he was an alchemist. And he was involved with the affair of the necklace in 1785 in Paris, etc. Um, the Count St. Germain, another historical figure, purported alchemist. And, and those two didn't even like each other. So right there, I'm like, wow, here is a wonderful historical base that I can just go and take off on this particular setting. So, so that's how it sort of came about, and then just building it out, doing my research um, into alchemy and sort of the basis on it, and just basically substituting this can work for this is all a fraud. Where, <laughs> where, uh, where do you think your background um, – I know that you've been a journalist. Your bio says a journalist and professional writer for 20 years. Where do you think your background helped you? What are maybe some some advice that you can give people that don't have that background? And where was your background something that made it more difficult to do this? 
Well, yeah, there, there are a couple of things. Um, so, yeah, I was a journalist um, up until about six years ago, and now I, I'm doing corporate work, um, which pays a lot better. Selling out was fun. But uh, as a journalist, I mean, a lot of what you do is research. And when you're writing historical fantasy or you're writing a very realistic future setting in science fiction, you need the research. Um, so, for example, in the Mars setting, I, I did a lot of research on what a Mars station would look like. What are the challenges of living on Mars? Is there anything worth mining on Mars? And yes, there is. Uh, so, I mean, you know, down to the point where I'm pulling up a, a globe of Mars and figuring out exactly where McAuliffe base is. Um, same with the history, going through, finding out who these people are, where they were, um, and adjusting my time frames around it so that I know that, you know, a certain character is going to be in Paris on this day. So I think being, being a journalist really helped with the research because you, you just, as you go along, you, you learn how to research. The other benefit is that uh, I write fast. I, I used to work for the Associated Press, where, you know, pounding out 5,000 words a day on like three different stories is, you know, normal. Um, so the ability to sit down kind of almost anywhere and for whatever period of time I can grab and pound out 250, 500,000, 3,000 words uh, became really critical to making sure that I could write a novel without totally disrupting my, my work and family life. What I think hurt is I, I had a little bit of a journalism mindset that I had to sort of abandon when it, when it came to people and their motivations because most people are fairly reasonable about their positions and why they take them. Most people will engage in diplomacy and talk things out. Um, and the demands of a novel are, are somewhat different from that. They require a lot more action. As a journalist, you're used to thinking ahead and sort of, well, what's the realistic expectation of this scenario? The realistic expectation of this conflict is that the two parties will meet and they will hash it out over a table and come to some sort of conclusion or the talks will break down and, and, and that'll be that. In a novel, that's really boring. <laughs> Um, that is incredibly boring. And, and I have to say, my first drafts had, you know, okay, something really amazing happened. And then the next section, they'd be literally sitting around a conference table talking about it. And that, that stunk. And, uh, you know, I, I blame Star Trek The Next Generation because, you know, when there was a crisis, you know, Captain Picard stands tall on the bridge, looks at the view screen and says, conference. And then they all get up and go to the other room and sit down around the table. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fire your phasers, man, really. Um, so, and you'll notice there's much more phaser firing in the movies, which require that a little bit more of that uh, oomph. So I, I think sort of throwing more mayhem at the problem was, was something that I ended up having to do a bit more and sort of abandoning the fact that, you know, no, these people aren't necessarily going to be reasonable about this. This is some crazy stuff happening. <laughs> so... I hear that the first draft was a NaNoWriMo novel. Is that right? It. Or was there NaNoWriMo at some point for this? There was Na there was NaNoWriMo for actually, um, for the second novel. Uh, which, gosh, when did I do that? I, I shortly after I, I got my agent, which would be 2012. So it would be November 2012. The Daedalus incident was pretty much written and just sort of shaping up, and I thought I would get a jump start on what will become the Enceladus crisis. 
So uh, let's um, let's step back then to how you got started with the Daedalus incident. Okay. Well, so the Daedalus incident, the first draft of which came out in three months. Remember, I, I just said that it was horrible. Um, <laughs> but, um, so the first draft came out in three months. It was just, I had the idea, I had the spare bandwidth, and, and I, I just went for it. And I pounded out a novel. And it was about 75,000 words. Um, it wasn't bad. And then I revised it. Admittedly, now knowing what I do, I revised it very lightly. And then I'm like, great. I wrote it. I did what they said. I revised it. Time to get some agents. Um, so I went and I queried agents and I queried six and one responded and asked for a partial and turned me down. And I, she really liked it. She had uh, a number of issues with regard to what I was doing. And I said, well, and she left the door open a little bit because uh, she's a, a newer agent at the time. And, and she invited me to, to try again after I asked and begged. So I revised it. And that, that took a lot longer because I didn't want to just revise my partial, have her ask for the full, and then I'd be sitting there like, well, i got to go revise the rest. So it really took a lot of time. And that actually took a good five months, six months. And then she really liked it and saw improvement and instead of taking me on, gave me some more suggestions. And then I revised it again. And then she took me on. <laughs> so that's Sarah Megabo. She is a fantastic agent. And so that's that's essentially how I got my agent. And then, of course, we had some more revisions, sort of whipping it into shape and getting it ready for shopping to publishers. And we ended up with Nightshade Books. And I'm, I'm sure you want to know all about that, too, right? <laughs> oh, oh, yes. We'll get into that. So what year was what your like time frame is this when Nightshade Books took it on? So basically, I got my agent in 2011. And we revised through much of the summer, and um, we started shopping in late 2012. Nightshade Books um, made an offer on it um, on my 40th birthday, which is the best midlife crisis ever. <laughs> um, it, was, it was perfect. And we had another offer from someone else, but you know, I, it was an ebook-only offer, whereas Nightshade, of course is in bookstores. And I mean, if I'm going to do this, let's do it. Uh, they offered more money as well. That was great. So I chose Nightshade um, and they picked me up. This would be in June of 2012. And then, you know, we started going back and forth on covers. We came up with a title, which it did not have at that point. Well, it had one, but it's horrible. And then, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to probably say it wrong, maybe once or twice more before the end of the show, but <laughs> right. That's fine. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. So uh, so basically, the Daedalus incident went through editing uh, with Ross Lockhart, who is a fantastic editor and is now at Word Horde. Um, so you should totally look him up because he's great. Um, he's not it, He's not a Word Horde? Is that what you said? He No, he now works for Word Horde, okay. which is his own imprint, which is great. Um, he did Tales of the Jack the Ripper. It was fantastic. You should ch totally check it out. So that happened through sort of the fall and into the winter. And in like January, February, we, we were aiming for a May release. January, February, I got my hands on some arcs, which I'm like, oh, my God, it's my book. It's real. It's in print. And so I started setting up um, some of my promotional stuff. Um, 
having been a journalist and then going going into the corporate side of things, I, I I'd like to think I know a little bit about marketing. And uh, so I was really excited. I'm like, I can nail this. I can get stuff. This will be good. Um, I, I will do my yeoman share to get this thing out, get the word out. And then in mid-late February, Nightshade went silent. Completely silent. Like, where where is my, my publisher? Where is my publicist? Um, uh, Ross Lockhart had actually left by then. He left in January, which was probably sort of the first inkling that maybe not all was well. Um, but as it turns out, they were in dire financial straits and were working with Skyhorse Publishing here in New York to basically acquire Nightshade's assets. Um, my book was one of those assets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So it, it was it was a, a tough couple of months, as you can imagine. Were you writing the sequel at this point? I, I was writing the sequel. It was sort of backburnered for a while because of the crushing uncertainty that was weighing on my psyche. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's really hard to write the, the second novel when you're not even sure if the first is going to see the light of day. We um, they announced the sale in I think early April of 2013. Now, my book was coming out May, in like early May. So, you know, <laughs> I wasn't going to make it. So basically what happened was that that was pushed back sort of indefinitely, that the launch of the first book. Um, the sale, you know, now there were a lot of authors who felt very strongly that this was not a good deal. And I think SIFWA, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, did a fantastic job of of being an intermediary and, and standing up for the authors and trying to get better terms. Um, you know, it, it was a really imperfect situation for all involved. I know a lot of the writers, you know, there are probably some writers out there who still, Nightshade still owes the money, the old Nightshade. Um, or they feel that they got ripped off. And you know what? I, I don't know their situations, but, you know, if I was in their boots, I'd probably feel the same way. I have to say I benefited disproportionately from the whole mess, which I feel very lucky for and slightly guilty because um, I know a lot of other writers didn't. But my book, The Daedalus Incident, basically became the default lead title for the new imprint at Skyhorse. They asked to uh, put me in the press release. I'm like, sure. And they set a new launch date for August. And... The cover got on io9.com, and the quote got on io9, and a bunch of other places, and Locus, and and all of a sudden, this book, which would have been just sort of another unheralded sort of debut, kind of became this this thing a little bit, um, which was shocking. And then, as we were going through that process of sort of seeing when we could get this puppy out, et cetera, getting, you know, first it was going to be late June, then early July. And, you know, the Skyhorse was doing its best, but man, they were, I mean, they, they really, they literally didn't even have the keys to the, to the Nightshade website. I'm not sure that they do at this point yet. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it was just, it was, it was a mess. You know, I think, uh, the guys, the guys at the old Nightshade it, were excellent editors, had a great nose for, for, for talent and, did a fantastic job editing and, and got beautiful books out there and did not have a good business sense. 
And I, you know, they have said as much, so I'm not disparaging them in any way, shape or form. I know they tried their darndest, but man, it was, it was a mess. So the book came out in August and, and, you know, I was able to get an excerpt up on IO9 and, and it got some stuff and it, and it was, it was successful um, as far as a debut novel from a brand new imprint could be. So people read it. They liked it. I have fans. It's weird. <laughs> I love my fans. I like all four of them. They're amazing. Um, there's plenty more than that, I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe six. <laughs> so how did this upheaval affect your view on writing and in particular the second book? Well, so, you know, I remember at Book Expo America, which is coming up um, next weekend, I went because I was supposed to, you know, have a book to be able to promote and sign. And so I had signed up to do Book Expo America. I didn't have a book, but I went because, you know, hey, it's coming, right? Um, but I actually met with Tony Lyons, the guy who owns and runs Skyhorse, um, the guy who was in the middle of negotiating all this stuff. And he made time to, to sit down with me. And, you know, we talked and he was very cool, you know, and then he said the magic words. So what else are you working on? And I'm like, dude, <laughs> Um, I'm working on the second one and I'd, I'd like to do two more. And he's like, write it up. Give me, give me a synopsis. Give me some stuff and uh, we'll see if we can do something. I'm like, okay, I like you. That's good. <laughs> um, so, uh, cause already at Daedalus, because it was, there were arcs floating around in the spring, it had already gotten a starred review from library journal, which was shocking and wonderful. Um, and it was the debut science fiction fantasy debut of the month. So that was great. I'm like, wow, that's really awesome. So I think just sort of based on the early reviews that were coming out, like, hey, this is a good book, um, they were willing to take a flyer and sort of maybe establish that there is a series they can hang their hat on for the next couple of years to, as they sort of ramp up. I mean, I'm not saying that my series, they, they have great authors. They have Ellen Datlow doing anthologies for them. They had Laird Barron doing fantastic, amazing work for them. So it's, it, you know, I am by no means the only one, but... Uh, you know, it was nice to sort of get that vote of confidence and, and do the next book. So, you know, I had had maybe maybe about a third of it done by then. And so it became a very sort of busy summer of writing for the Enceladus crisis. And I'm sure very, very excited too, right? Oh, sure. I mean, basically I went from, oh my God, is my book going to get lost in bankruptcy court forever to, hey, we like it, we're going to publish it, and we'd like you to do more. Okay, I'll do two more. That's great. Let's go. This is awesome. I'm a writer now. Um, I'm an author, I should say. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was very exciting. It was very fun. Um, and so we, we went for it and did two more books. So how did that encouragement help you through whatever writing challenges you had at the moment, like through the summer, and maybe how did it change your production? Writing on deadline is a wonderful motivator. <laughs> The, the first book was written basically at my leisure. The, the second one was written with a deadline in mind, which, you know, I mostly made. Don't, don't ask me either. Um, I mostly made it. It wasn't bad. So, you know, it certainly lent urgency, but also it lent some confidence. Again, by the, by the summer of last year, so the first book had already sort of been reviewed by some folks. And we had put out the ebook a little early, so, so we got, you know, some ebook readers chiming in, etc., and, you know, between Library Journal and, and Tor and other folks chiming in, wow, this, this is a good book. It, it, it lent a lot of confidence and it led me to try some things 
in the second book. I think they were mostly successful, a few little dings here and there, but you know, it's my second book. You're bound to, you know, that's what it's kind of there for to see if it's a repeatable phenomenon. Mostly it is. So I, it was confidence. It was sort of the necessity of writing towards a deadline and just fun knowing that, you know, it was really happening. There, there's far less, when you have a two book deal afterwards and your first one is doing all right, you, you know, you're writing with a lot less uncertainty and that can be really liberating. So where was the second book more challenging and how did you try and make it better than the first book? Well, you know, the first book, the first book's past setting was 1779, um, which is not actually the classic sort of Horatio Hornblower master and commander era that those classic um, O'Brien C.S. Forrester books are set during the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, that is England's finest hour uh, for naval fiction. So I knew I wanted to get into that. And I wanted to explore both worlds more, certainly. I wanted to expand but not be... You don't want to repeat the first one. You, you just don't. I mean, you don't want to get the band back together and, and go out on the road again. You want to expand but be be familiar. I, I've actually done a guest post on this. Empire Strikes Back is like the perfect sequel. It really is. If you think about it, you have all your favorite characters. They're all back. They're all doing this cool stuff. You get to expand your setting, but some of it's very familiar. You get to up your personal stakes without necessarily blowing up another Death Star. So that was a pretty decent model to think about when I was putting it together, just to, to, to make it different. I think raising the personal stakes and developing the characters, that was key. I did do four POV characters, essentially, instead of two. Juggling those proved to be a challenge. I'm not sure I was entirely successful, mostly, but not entirely. Yeah, and the other thing I knew is I, I kind of wanted it to be sort of cliffhanger at the end. And if you haven't gotten through the second one yet, so sorry, um, there's a cliffhanger at the end. <laughs> <laughs> what's the, if you're reading Goodreads or any other review, you probably already know that, so it's all good. What's the status on the third book, do you know? Yeah, the, the status of the third book, third book, now that Nightshade is very much a house in order at this point, at least for me, I'm not sure, again, what other authors are experiencing. So the third book is going to come out next March. It is in process. It's coming along well. And, you know, there are definitely lessons that I'm applying from the second book and the reaction to the second book. But there hasn't been anything that's made me want to, like, deviate from sort of the, the grand idea of it. And it, it's coming along well, and it's going to be a big bang-up ending. Uh, I'm... This is classic adventure stuff for me. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I, this is this is my inner 13-year-old coming out. <laughs> I know that's probably, probably turned off some readers right there. No, it's nuanced, I promise, but it's just fun. <laughs> we haven't we haven't talked a whole lot about characters and that's one of the things for me that's most important to a story and uh I'm wondering if you could share in how your characters in their conflict, their major conflict, how they how they surprised you? This question's kind of off the cuff, and so I don't know if that is would be a spoiler for anybody. What do you think? No, I, I don't think it's a spoiler. Um, so there are basically four main characters, two in each of the settings. 
in in the sailing ships in space setting, there's Thomas Weatherby, as it was mentioned in the jacket cover in the Dalos incident. And he has, I think, a great relationship with Andrew Finch, the formerly drug-addled alchemist. Finch, I think, has taken some wonderful turns over the course of the first two books, and especially as I'm getting into the third. If there were Doritos in the 1700s, he'd be on the couch eating them <laughs> after doing whatever he was doing. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, you know, but he's a brilliant guy. And I think it, it took Weatherby and some tough love and some some knowledge that, wow, you know, I can make a difference and the stakes are, are high and things things can happen for me. So his evolution into really a to putting his intelligence to use to becoming a, a, an outstanding alchemist, um, that has been interesting. And it's also awakened his ambition as well, which I think comes through in the second book, because he's in the second book, he's cagier. He, he's um, he's very interested in, in furthering his abilities, um, sometimes to the detriment of common sense. Uh, maybe he found a new addiction in, in alchemical power as opposed to simply uh, drugs. Um, he was a fun, he has a fun arc, and I'm, I, I think in many ways, book three is going to wrap up his arc and going to be really fascinating for people. Uh, Weatherby is is the Horatio Hornblower. He is Captain Jack Aubrey. He is the very prototypical hero, uh, but also one who is, I think, smart enough to question who he is and why he does what he does. I think his his arc in the Daedalus incident showed him from being sort of a, a gung-ho young patriot to someone who sees the world in a far more nuanced way, someone who, you know, can can understand other people's flaws as opposed to disparage them for it. Um, he grew a lot. And I think in the Enceladus crisis, he's taking on the mantle of leadership and still wrestling with some of the, the decisions he made in the past that he didn't like. Um, but he's grown up quite nicely. I'm actually kind of proud of him. So those are, those are the two main characters, and their their dynamic is very much that sort of Kirk Bones type thing, which is, again, based on sort of uh, Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey and Maturin. So it all comes full circle, I suppose. Before you go to the other two POVs, how did those two people, their arcs, how is that personal to you? Weatherby's story is very much about maturity. Um, He is very responsible, unlike myself in my youth. Um, I'm, I was more I was more Finch in that regard, although not with the pharmaceuticals. So Weatherby, I think, was, was very, very immature and a little gung-ho and just coming to, to terms with the world as it is and not how you want it to be. That, I think, is, is something we all try to wrestle with. So I think that's definitely part of Weatherby's arc. And then stepping up with that knowledge and doing what you have to do anyway. That, I think, is something we all have to do, and that was definitely part of, of me and him. And as for Finch, you know, Finch is cruising. Finch, when, he, when you start the Dayless incident, he is getting by on his immense intelligence and doing the minimum possible. And I think I had that tendency as well in my youth. And, you know, sort of coming into his own and, and recognizing his responsibilities. And again, I think it's very relatable. But, yeah, that, that's part of me too, I suppose. Okay. Thanks for that. Go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, no worries. So the other two point of view characters, Shayla Jane. 
she is an astronaut in the 22nd century, stuck at a backwater mining colony on Mars. Um, it is she is babysitting corporate miners um, on behalf of the Joint Space Command. It's it's dull. It's painfully dull. It's horrible. Um, and she is sort of the acting deputy on the base, the acting deputy commander. Um, she is there because her inaugural um, interplanetary mission to Jupiter went badly. It wasn't her fault, but it took its toll, and they basically farmed her out to Mars to get her head on straight. So she's young, she's angry, she feels like she should be doing better stuff, maybe doesn't necessarily recognize that her anger is getting in her way. Also, that her anger is putting her off towards other people and other potential friendships and relationships. Um, and again, I think that we've all had those, those sort of days as well, where we are not happy where we are, we're angry at the world, and it affects us, and it affects how we do what we need to do. I, I really, she was probably the toughest character to write for me. She is a woman. She is English by way of India. Um, she's very different from me. Her experiences, her worldview is going to be very different from me. And so I really wanted to take care of writing her so that she was not sort of the caricature of the bitter, angry woman, that she was not the character of, you know, the failed officer to, to make her as, as human as possible and as relatable. I, you know, I, I think it worked. Um, at least nobody's called me on the carpet for it. So knock on wood. And the other main character is Stéphane Durand. He's French. Uh, he is stereotypically French at first. He is a bit of a playboy. He's a planetary geologist working for the mining colony as, of course, these earthquakes are racking Mars, and it's up to him to figure it out. And he has to step up. He's, he's a little bit like Finch in that regard, that he's sort of slacking on Mars for six months while he gets his next academic gig. And now he's faced with, you know, this huge potential strangeness that he really has to figure out. And in doing so, he steps up in a big way. And it's not that he didn't have it in him. I just don't think he was ever challenged before. But earthquakes on Mars when there aren't supposed to be any, any you know, that's that's good. That's a challenge. And in doing so, he and Shayla work together, sort of come to terms with each other and grow a little closer. And then at the end, grow a lot closer. So, and we'll see the results of that in the Enceladus crisis too. Very cool. That's a uh, man. I've got four POVs in in the book that I'm writing right now, and it's it's um it's not easy. What kind of tips do you have for those that are blessed with that burden? <laughs> well, you know, so this is something that I've kind of learned when folks have compared the two books. Um, so the first book really was two. Two main POVs. You had Shayla, you had Weatherby. And I was able to sort of transition between the sections with a bit of a cliffhanger. I always believe in leaving them wanting more. And that worked really well for the Daedalus incident. In the Enceladus crisis, I expanded it to four points of view. So you have Weatherby, who is uh, chasing the French from the Battle of the Nile in 1798 to Venus and on to Saturn. You have Finch, who is staying in Egypt to infiltrate Napoleon's forces and figure out why they are in Egypt. And then in the future setting, you have Shayla, who is on a mission to Saturn, um, like sort of her reward for being good, but also 
because in Weatherby's journal, the first book, they, he mentioned aliens on Saturn. And now there is a, a keen interest in figuring out if there's anybody there uh, in our future setting. And then also in the future setting, you have the former base commander on Mars, Maria Diaz, who is now investigating the possibility of another dimensional incursion happening on Earth. So I've got these four POVs. And getting from point A to point B in each of those sections uh, is not easy. And I found it less effective to sort of cliffhanger at the end because you're not going to come back to these people for a while. You know, you could ping pong back and forth between 1779 and 2132. That's fine. You know, you've got good chunky sections, cool stuff happens, do the switch. But with four of them, you can't, you know, those have to be a little more contained because if you really cliffhanger hard on one section, you might not be back to that person for another 50 pages. Um, that's tough. And I, I, I do think that's something that I had to deal with. And I, I think I did it somewhat successfully. Um, I, I, I think that I could have done better. Um, but um, that's definitely a bit of learning that I'm carrying with me to the Venusian Crisis, which is book three. Or Venusian Gambit, sorry. I should really get the name of my book straight. <laughs> so th that, that's something I, I'm carrying on. Um, I, I think being more self-contained in each of those sections, making sure that those sections have a, a beginning, middle, and end, you still, I think, want to have at the end of each section a, a, a kicker. In fact, when I outline, and I outline in an Excel, I literally have a row, uh, or I'm sorry, a column labeled kicker. Like, how are you going to screw with people at the end of this section? Because um, I want the section to end on something interesting, memorable. Not like, and they walked out of the office and went and got a smoothie. But that, that kicker doesn't have to be a cliffhanger. It can be a really hard emotional sort of ending, you know, maybe there's no resolution, but it ends the scene. I, I actually did, I think, a really good one in book three that I just finished writing where, you know, the scene is over, you, you have that conclusion in terms of plot, but the emotion of it and what the character is going through just hits you over the head and it, it's, it's heart-wrenching. That's a good way to end. So, yeah, just making sure I think each of those POV sections is, is a little more self-contained. I mean, you can cliffhanger, and it's effective. But doing it so that you're ping-ponging between four cliffhangers is really hard. <laughs> One of the things that I'm looking at as I'm writing using Scrivener is the word counts per section. Do you, mm -hmm. do you have an idea, or do you remember kind of what kind of – what was your threshold for that? I kind of defaulted to the old journalism maxim. It's as long as it needs to be. Okay. Now that, that said, I mean, you know, a thousand words for a section and then shifting. No. Um, you know, I've had POV sections that have gone on for, uh, oh gosh, 4,000 words. Um, and I've had them go for two. I've had them go for 1500. You know, between two and three, I, I tend to, I, I use Word. I, I, I've got, I haven't gotten into Scrivener yet. I might for the next series. I don't know. But um, on the other hand, if it ain't broke, 
but yeah, you know, anywhere, you know, I guess 10 word pages double spaced mm-hmm. is about my ballpark. But if I, if I go eight, if I go 15, you know, just, just get the section done and, and end it on the note you want to end it on. Um, that's kind of how I go. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm leaning toward as well. I just, I hear editors talking about pacing and you want to keep it similar, but I'm not going to, you know, make a section larger than it should be. So. Right. And, and, you know, I've made decisions as well where, you know, you'll end a section and it's a great way to end the chapter, especially on a thematic level. If you've got the sections, if you've got the various sections sort of all happening concurrently and sort of dealing with the same ideas you want to end it there, but I will start that next chapter as a continuation of the last section if I have to. Um, really, do what the story dictates. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it if it needs to be longer, if you need to put you know twenty pages in there, well, look, if you need to put a twenty page POV section smack dab in the middle and leave everybody hanging for that long, you know, gut check that, <laughs> check your reasons. Yeah, but. Um, you know, if, if that's what you need to get everybody where you need them to be and, and to get that story where it needs to be, then totally. Very good. Man, that's some, this has been a really quality episode. <laughs> that's a lot of good advice. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but before, before we go, I wanted to ask, you know, in this changing landscape of publishing, uh, what do you recommend to people about the route that you've chosen with Nightshade Books? Well, boy, I mean, I can look back on it now and be very, very satisfied. Um, I like the new Nightshade. Um, I think they have done uh, a great job in editing. I think the cover of book two is just mind-blowingly, freakishly awesome. Um, They have done that, you know... All the business stuff is as it should be. Um, I, the artistic stuff, I've been pleasantly surprised because um, these folks are just getting off the ground. So I, I, I am, you know, I have confidence that that Skyhorse Nightshade will be able to do cool things. And it's still growing pains. And there will be, you know, you can't you can't do an imprint overnight. But I, I think that they're definitely on the right track. I don't recommend, you know, having your old publisher um, fold and go into bankruptcy court. <laughs> don't look for that. <laughs> don't look for that. Um, you know, they had just gotten off of probation from CIFWA. So I'm like, oh, okay, they must have fixed it. Well, you know, maybe not. I don't I don't have any regrets because I came out really well. But, you know, I, I think you have to – publishing is a risk. Publishing is always going to be a risk. I had no idea whether the Daedalus incident would be any good. I There was a small part of me that was like, this crazy sailing ships in space idea is just stupid and people are going to laugh you out of publishing altogether. Um, and they didn't, which was great. It, it, the, the books have been really well reviewed. I'm really, really still surprisingly happy and it's great. But publishing is a risk. You're rolling the dice. The people who choose your books, they're rolling the dice. Um, now they are doing so knowing that their professional careers and reputations are riding on that, so they're very cautious. Um, and if they do choose you, it's a really good gamble for them, obviously. But just go in knowing that you just you can't dictate anything what the market's looking for. You just write the best book you can, 
write the one that's in your head and not what the, you think the market wants and just get it out there and hope for the best. There's no, there's no secret sauce to it. If there was, man, everybody found it by now. <laughs> Very good. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to mention before we took off, Michael? Um, no, I, you know, thank you for having me on. Um, Daedalus Incident's been out for about a year. The Enceladus Crisis has been out for a few weeks. And, um, I hope people enjoy them. The third book, The Venusian Gambit, is going to be out in March. And then I'll do other stuff, which could be fun, too. So um, thanks for having me on. And, and for people who have read my stuff, I, I genuinely appreciate it. It's awesome. And there's also the gravity of – is it The Gravity of the Affair? Yes, uh, The Gravity of the Affair. It is a little novella that I published through my agency, actually. Um, it was sort of something I had whipped up while uh, the Daedalus incident was in limbo, which is kind of why we were able to get it out there a little bit. And it's a novella dealing with a very young Horatio Nelson um, in the uh, known worlds of the Daedalus incident, sailing about the, the Jovian system. And it's a, it's a fun little story. I was glad to get it out there. So how does that work with the rest of the series? Is it tied in at all? It is a sort of side event. You don't need to read the series to enjoy the gravity of the affair. And, you know, you're not missing anything if you've read the series and don't read it. But I think if you, I think reading both gives you just a little bit more nuance, a little bit more fun. I think the, the novella ad is, is a great intro to kind of the ideas behind the setting. And again, people who are, who are reading the Daedalus series, I think would find yeah, Nelson's a minor character um, and will be. But uh, I think he gets his own turn on the stage, and I think it's pretty cool. Very, very cool. Well, Nightshade Books is doing a giveaway uh, for your series. So if anybody is interested in that, uh, go over to our website, adventuresinsci-fi-publishing.com, and sign up for the newsletter. It's been great to talk with you, Michael. Thanks for making time, and I wish you the best. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. Thank you.